Hello, my name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. I hope you enjoy listening to today's discussion. Hello and welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Jonathan Kay and I am Quillette's Canadian Editor. We've been hearing a lot about the so-called intellectual dark web in recent months, a group of scientifically literate academics and intellectuals with a range of political views, but united in their opposition to the narrow dogmas of the intersectional left. Well, one woman who was part of this IDW long before it was even known as the IDW was Heather MacDonald a New York-based conservative writer and Manhattan Institute scholar who for years has been challenging lazy assumptions about American society, especially when it comes to race and gender. Her new book from St. Martin's Press, which we've recently excerpted in Quillette, is titled The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Earlier this month, I caught up with Heather at her Upper East Side apartment in New York to discuss her critique of American higher education and much else. Here's our recording of that interview. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure for me as well. And uh, just so listeners know, we're recording this uh, in Manhattan, and you might hear some noise outside because... uh, we're 15 floors up, but uh, you still do hear the occasional uh, honking noise and whatnot. Heather, if I may call you Heather. Uh, of course. I feel like I've been reading your work for a long time. I, <laughs> it's tedious, isn't it? It, it? it feels like a long time. You and I are about the same age, but I remember you were talking, uh, writing about things like racial profiling and that area, not just before it Black Lives Matter and, and, and the current discussion about it, but I want to say like 10, 15 years ago. You, oh, at least. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I guess you were, you were ahead of the curve. But you're also, because of that, you have this longitudinal ability to look at the different kinds of pushback you got. So for readers who haven't read The Diversity Delusion, spoiler alert, you are skeptical of some of the claims made by Black Lives Matter about the behavior of police. Uh, Some people, both your critics and otherwise, have said that in certain situations you've defended police behavior. So between now and and, and the time when you were originally doing this research for the Manhattan Institute, how has the reaction differed? Well, my last book, The War on Cops, certainly got a lot more attention than anything I'd written before. And it came out in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, coincidentally, right as five cops were assassinated in Dallas. And the same month in July of 2016, another three cops would be assassinated in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So this was a moment of heightened animosity towards the cops, thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement. When I first published an article about what I called the Ferguson effect, which was the 
twin phenomena of officers backing off of a type of policing called proactive policing that I, I view as essential to lowering crime. This is Ferguson, Missouri. In Ferguson, yeah, Missouri, yeah. The, where Michael Brown was infamously killed by a police officer and immediately turned into a martyr to police racism. So what I dubbed the Ferguson effect is the resulting reluctance of officers to engage with suspicious behavior in high crime areas and then the resulting increase in crime. When I published that article, the American Society of Criminologists put out a call to its members to take me down, something that they'd never done before. So take down, of, of course, figuratively. Figuratively, right, right. Yeah, although yeah. I have been doxxed by Black Lives Matter yeah. to uh, take down this r- racist journalist, don't get a pass, as they said. So this was certainly seen as more threatening to the monopoly that the criminological left has both on the academy and on the uh, mainstream media. Well, we'll get to your critique of of the academy in a bit. It's um, probably the central theme of uh, your new book. But I want to talk a little bit more about the reaction to your writing about police behavior because, again, going back to to some of your earliest writing on the subject, you were always very much an intensive student of the data. And you'd look at a data – I remember there was a data set in New Jersey you looked at in terms of traffic stops and that sort of thing. And as someone myself who who loves math and loves that sort of thing, I I was intensely interested in it. But we live in an age where a lot of the discussion – isn't based on data, it's based on the latest video that you see on YouTube. And some of these videos uh, truly are horrific, uh, where you'll see a a white police officer uh, shooting an unarmed black man, uh, sometimes as he's running away. And it strikes me that it's hard to argue with the reaction people have to that sort of thing. How has that changed the way you approach the issue? Are, are, Are there some parts of the issue that can no longer be addressed in debate because the video is just so emotional to watch. Well, there I'm up against enormous ignorance about the facts of crime. The media for the last 30 years has been on a crusade to keep the American public completely in the dark about how disparate crime rates are. We remember in the 1990s, TV stations, the media stopped publishing the race of criminal suspects uh, because they were overwhelmingly black. And even though this is completely against the public interest, because if somebody has yet to be apprehended uh, and all you have is a victim description, you want to give the public every possible piece of information in order to be able to get that criminal off the street. But the media was more interested in preserving this veil of ignorance than it was in protecting the public. So it's hard to argue with the public as I do, which is to look at the numbers, to put police activity in the context of criminal activity, which is where it must always be put when they are so ignorant about criminal activity. Of course, these videos, which are received joyfully by the media and put on 24-hour loop on CNN and MSNBC, have created a public perception The question is, are there white people being shot that we don't see? Yes, there are. And there are white people who have been shot in equally questionable circumstances that the media has no interest in showing. They're only interested in black victims 
if a police officer uh, kills that victim. They are not interested in the thousands and thousands of black victims who die every year due to street crime. Well, I, I know from your writing and also from some of your exchanges with uh, sometimes um, testy critics that take place in uh, on university campuses and that sort of thing that you know, you've made the argument that when police officers are held back from using the, the tactics that, that they want to use, that it's minority communities that suffer. W- would you say the data backs up that claim? Yes, absolutely. Nearly 3,000 additional black males were killed in 2015 and 2016 than they would have been had homicide rates remained at the 2014 levels. And, and just to clarify, those are 3,000 lives that th- – those aren't being – People aren't being killed by police officers. They're being killed in in the normal run of criminal encounters, yes? The police could end all use of lethal force tomorrow, and it would have a negligible effect on the black death by homicide rate. Blacks in in the United States die at homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. Who's killing them? Not the cops, not whites, but other blacks. In fact, a larger percentage of white and Hispanic homicide victims are killed by a cop than black homicide victims who are killed by a cop. Fully 12% of all whites and Hispanics who die of homicide have been killed by a cop compared to 4% of black homicide victims who have been killed by a cop. So if we're going to have an anti-cop Lives Matter movement, it would actually make more sense to call it white and Hispanic Lives Matter. So when I think when a lot of listeners hear you talk about statistics like that, especially in the current climate, there's there are people who are going to get their back up and wonder about your views on, on larger issues concerning race. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to spell some of those issues out because I know that you have been misrepresented. Uh, in your book, for instance, you talk about how you'll appear on a university campus and the student newspaper will, will describe you in terms that you scarcely recognize yourself. They, they make you out to be a, a monster sometimes. Would you acknowledge that Black Lives Matter does have some, some reasonable uh, grievances? I, I know a lot of people in my peer group have said that in the last few years they, they have educated themselves about the way that black people are treated not just by police but by society in general and that there's a much greater climate of suspicion and fear uh, surrounding blacks than, than people of other races. Uh, show me a agenda item on the Black Lives Matter list that is fact-based and I will consider supporting it. In fact, when they finally got around to putting out an entire set of demands, it was amazingly centered on LGBTQ issues as if they'd sort of run out of the police issues. Uh, sorry, actually, this is this has been an issue in Toronto also, where, where I come from, where uh, the manifestos of, of Black Lives Matter do sometimes seem like more like they've come from a university campus than than from the actual uh, grassroots community. But putting Black Lives Matter uh, to the side for one moment, would you not agree that the larger black community does have uh, legitimate grievances against, as I say, not just the police, but society in general for institutional practices that at least in effect, if not intent, uh, have a negative effect on blacks? Well, let's, let's keep it on policing. Uh, Historically, they certainly have a grievance. There's no question that this country was grotesquely racist in a most 
extraordinary violation of its founding principles that it never stopped trumpeting as making America exceptional. And the blindness to that contradiction and hypocrisy is is difficult to fathom. But today, traditionally, the gripe against the police was that it ignored, they ignored crime in minority neighborhoods, that the police viewed, well, that's just what black people do, and they focused their attention on Wall Street or, you know, Midtown Manhattan or the Magnificent Mile in Chicago and left those thousands of hardworking, striving, bourgeois minority citizens of high-crime neighborhoods to fend for themselves. Today, policing is ruthlessly data-driven, and commanders are held accountable for crime patterns in their jurisdictions. The police go where they go for two reasons. That's where people are being victimized, as shown by 911 calls and other sources of hard data, and that's where communities are begging for protection and for surcease from street disorder. So is there more police activity in black neighborhoods than on Park Avenue? Absolutely. For one reason, because that's where people are being victimized. You seem to be suggesting that it's disruptive or challenging to use numbers, but I'm sorry, I I cannot get away from it. Let me give you an example in New York City. Blacks are 23% of the population. They commit over 70% of all shootings. If you add Hispanics shootings to black shootings, you get over 98% of all shootings in New York City. Whites are about 34% of New York's population. They commit less than 2% of all shootings. Now, those facts have enormous implications for how police do their jobs. It means that virtually every time the police in New York are called out on a shots-fired call, meaning that somebody has been shot, they are being called to a minority neighborhood on behalf of a minority victim and being given a description, if anybody for once is cooperating with the police, of a minority suspect. They do not wish that reality. It's a reality forced upon them by the facts of crime. Police hope against hope. When they're called out on these shots fired call that for once they will be given the description of a white suspect, and it virtually never happens. So we're having this conversation in uh, in New York City, and um, I, without revealing too much detail, I, you live in a fairly diverse neighborhood. How much has the experience of, of living in New York City over the last, was it 30, 40 years you've, you've lived here? Is that, is that right? Well, let's do the math. I uh, came in 87, so... Okay, uh, okay so, so more than 30 years. Uh-huh. Um, and New York has, has undergone stunning transformations. Uh, you know, in the 70s, you couldn't walk around Times Square after dark. You'd, you'd get mugged. New York City has been um, a, a, sort of a lab experiment for policing and for urban reform. How much of that has gone into your writing about subjects like this? Well, the 90s were an extraordinarily exciting time to be in New York if you're in the sort of public policy think tank business because we had a mayor that was willing to buck every single bromide of Mayor Rudolph Giuliani of urban theology. 
Uh, he took on the welfare industry here. He took on the anti-policing environment. And he said, and his police commissioner, William Bratton, said, we are going to turn the the way policing has been understood on its head. Up until that point, police chiefs themselves said we cannot control crime. The FBI, our Federal Bureau of Investigation, one of the premier federal law enforcement agencies, publishes an annual report on crime in the United States. It's, it's the premier point for data. They Throughout the 80s, every year they would have a disclaimer saying, well, as we all know, homicide is a social problem that the police can do nothing about. So William Bratton, the police commissioner, and Mayor Rudolph Giuliani came in and said, no, we're actually going to lower crime. And Bratton set himself a numerical target to bring crime down 10% in his first year. That had never been done. It was unthinkable because the police didn't want accountability. He not only met his goal, he beat it. He set another goal the next year of 15%, beat that one again. Uh, so this was a transformative moment, and they also showed the power of paying attention to urban disorder. And it has been my privilege, being where I am, to spend time in minority neighborhoods, to go to police community meetings in Harlem, in the South Bronx, in Central Brooklyn, to hear these good people with aspirations that are no different than you and I, that want to be able to walk on the streets free from fear. And their number one complaint is street disorder. I went to the 41st Precinct in the South Bronx. They're complaining about kids hanging out on corners fighting. One woman said, whatever happened to truancy laws? You know, why can't you arrest them for loitering? And the police have to explain, well, we have the Supreme Court decision that says anti-loitering laws are unconstitutional. Somebody says, you know, they're, they're hanging out there like birds. They're beating each other up. People are fearful that out of these knots of youth emerge drive-by shootings for good reason, because that is the case. That fierce desire for street order is something that is completely unrecognized by the public and by the media, but it is what drives the police in their tactics. So let me segue from that into something that's closer to the subject of your your new book. I'll repeat the title, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Because when I read the quotations from students on elite campuses, uh, students who are purporting to channel the concerns and grievances of, of people of color, uh, they sound nothing like the, the actual working class and middle class people of color who you're describing from these meetings you attend. Uh, is, is it fair to say that there is a chasm between those two representations of the views of people of color in uh, American urban communities? Huge chasm. There's, there's no overlap whatsoever. I, I wish I could take these students with me. I gave a talk at the Yale Law School where I, I just simply quoted their voices and just got complete rejection. It's impossible for them to absorb that because it contradicts the ideology that the police are oppressor, occupier force that are somehow deciding for, it's never been really explained, well, why are the police doing this? And what's your theory of police racism? How does it come about that every single police force becomes racist? Are they racist going in? Are they racist going out? But it's too much of a central 
tenet of their worldview to be able to absorb a different reality. Now, if somebody might say that about me too, uh, that I am, am unable to absorb the reality of police racism, but, you know, I, of course there are police who make mistakes, who overreact to stress, who have made some grotesque shootings over the last couple of years that we've seen, but they are by no means the norm. They do not, we are not living through an epidemic of racially biased police shootings. So let's go a little bit to your theory of, of what makes universities, and especially elite universities, which are the subject of a lot of the material in your new book, what makes them so out of touch? One interesting thesis that's emerged in, in recent years, it came out of the Atlantic magazine article, I think it was called The Coddling of the American Mind, which is a psychological theory of university students and how uh, they've been coddled and they come to university and they're, they're still really children and they're treated like children and universities are very much in the business these days of customer service. And so when, you are, you know, when you're in the customer service business to children, you, you end up treating them like children. Uh, interestingly, in your book, you... You don't have that much – well, it's not like you don't have much time for it, but for you it's about ideology. It's Absolutely. About, and tell me what the ideology is that, that makes the modern university what it is in terms of uh, how it's teaching students. Well, the ideology is, is one of victimhood. It's a belief that America is defined by racism and sexism. Most preposterously, it's the idea that to be a female student – or a so-called underrepresented minority, these are blacks and Hispanics on a campus today, is to be the subject of endless discrimination to the point of living under an existential threat. And that ideology, which is also paired with the idea that the most important thing about an individual is what I view as relatively irrelevant characteristics of race, gender, sexual preference, that those things are central, they should be the focus of academic study, and that we need huge bureaucracies. There is a metastasizing diversity bureaucracy on American college campuses, and British ones, Canadian ones as well, devoted to this ideology of victimhood. So there's a codependency between the diversity bureaucrats and these narcissistic delusional students who regularly act out little psychodramas of oppression before an appreciative audience of diversity bureaucrats who know that what the student's first demand will be, we need another vice chancellor of equity, diversity, inclusion, and more mental health counseling. And I mean, I guess to be fair to the students, since administrators keep complying with these demands, I guess I don't blame them for keep making this, you know, behavioristic conditioning being what it is. If you know your demands are going to be met, why not keep making them? In, in all your research, have you encountered a university that truly got it right and pushed back against some of the stuff and just said, look, we've gone far enough, go somewhere else if you're looking for, for even more of a diversity bureaucracy? Not really. University of Chicago gets a lot of a favorable press, and deservedly so, for a letter that was sent out to freshmen several years ago by the dean and provost saying, we are not in the business of creating safe spaces here. Uh, you're here to learn, and we believe in not sheltering people from ideas that allegedly make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, that's a very good start, but Chicago has its own cadre of faculty and administrators who 
are in the diversity business. Your own magazine recently published an article suggesting that President Robert Zimmer uh, responded not in perfect good faith to an effort of by one of his faculty members to kill a paper in mathematics that had suggested that there was a evolutionary reason why there may be a clustering of males at the very high end of math capacity and, very low and end. the very yeah, low yeah. end of math so, capacity. And this was, uh, this was Theodore Hill, I believe, yes. uh, who, who wrote the paper and presented strong evidence that it had been disappeared as the expression goes, from at least one journal. And yes, that was disappointing for a lot of people that the University of Chicago, despite its previously strong support for freedom of academic inquiry, uh, appeared to be bending on that. But I do remember, I'm not sure if I read it in your book or elsewhere, that I think it was the University of Michigan that had something like 100 people on staff devoted to equity and diversity. Yeah, that's that's standard. And, and I also would say, Jonathan, you've been mentioning elite universities. There's another conceit out there that this poison of identity politics and victimhood is limited to the elite universities. Would that were the case? It's simply not true. It has now reached even into community colleges, which are the two-year schools that we have in the United States that are sort of for more vocationally oriented. I was recently interviewed by the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is sort of the trade paper for academia about a community college in Southern California around San Diego that has just gone completely nuts with regards to diversity, casting aside any pretense of a neutral curriculum in favor of color-coded readings for students that they should only, if you're Chicano, you should only be expected to read Chicano studies. So it's everywhere. And we've got a few exceptions like Hillsdale College, which doesn't take any federal money, so therefore it can come under none of the federal mandates. But but also, I also disagree with a, one conservative meme that is to blame the federal bureaucracy for all of this. Uh, this was an idea that went around with the Obama administration and the whole issue of campus rape, which I am very skeptical about, but there was a guidance that came out of the Justice and Education Departments in the United States in 2011 called the Dear Colleague Letter that encouraged schools to junk any sort of due process protections for defendants in campus rape proceedings. And the the understanding was, well, it was the federal government that made them do it. No, it wasn't. These these colleges are independent actors. Even without federal pressure, they are going to continue embracing an ideology that is divisive, and I view it as fundamentally anti-knowledge and anti-learning. And just to stay abreast of recent events, uh, the current education secretary under Donald Trump, Betty DeVos, she to the extent the government did have those regulations or policies promulgated, I think she has changed them and has now emphasized more due process for all parties concerned, if, if I'm correct. Uh, okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about the claims you make in your book. From a broader reading, I feel like you're angry. Like I'm reading the book and you know, you're dispassionately describing the situation in a lot of campuses, but there are these flashes of, of anger that come out uh, not, I would say, against individual people, but almost against this culture. And when you were writing this, uh, especially when you're writing about some of these, I guess you'd call them like pampered upper middle class kids who are writhing around as if they're Sisyphus or something like that. 
you do seem angry. Did you know you were angry when you were writing this, or or am I misreading you? Are you not an angry person? Well, I'm. I'm angry at the betrayal of a, the university's mission. I had aspired to be an academic. I loved language. I was fascinated by problems of meaning and interpretation. In in high school, I, I loved Melville. I loved Faulkner because the language was so extreme and and. But those strange. are dead white European males. <laughs> I, I was very fortunate. I even got through college without anybody thinking to complain. This was the 1970s at Yale at the height of deconstruction. And because I came into college with this interest in language, sadly, I was too ignorant to be immune to the lore of deconstruction. And it seemed like a very, that was the hottest thing on campus. It seemed like a dangerous knowledge, a sort of a forbidden understanding of how language always failed. So I was an acolyte of Paul Demon and, and Jacques Derrida, but I am very grateful, even though I wasted so many hours, it makes me sick, struggling over La Mythologie Blanche by Derrida or uh, relatively obscure or explicitly obscure passages of Heidegger, I was allowed to read the canon without anybody complaining about the gender and and race of the authors. So you make a really interesting point in your book that I had thought of, because obviously the word deconstructionism is, is thrown around as a laugh line in, in conservative circles. But you make the point, and I'm going to quote here from your book, uh, deconstructive theorists such as Paul Demann and Jacques Derrida perform their interpretive slates of hand on Proust, Rousseau, Plato, Shelley, and Wordsworth, among other leading philosophers and writers, they did not disparage these complex texts as the contemptible products of dead white males. And then you go on to say that it was multiculturalism in the 1980s that 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 made uh, scholars in modern languages suspicious of anybody who was – there was even an acronym for it, DWEM, dead, dead white European male. So you know, it sounds like it wasn't just the deconstructionists. It was deconstructionism plus multiculturalism. Uh, or were there other elements? Is, was it, is it plus Marxism? Like what, what are the ingredients in the academic malaise you now see on campuses? Well, Marxism is invoked with honor but rarely actually applied. I mean it's, it's, a, it's a pretense that any of these academics are truly engaged in class warfare or anything like that. I mean they are status hungry themselves. Well, and, and yet in your book you provide examples of explicit – Apologism on behalf of protesters at Berkeley who destroyed property. You quote from from professors who who went to great lengths to say this wasn't even violence. That's true. A number of faculty at the University of California at Berkeley brushed off and legitimated the use of violence, destroying property, to shut down the provocateur, the anti-political correctness. Uh, crusader Milo Yiannopoulos from speaking. Even so, their indifference to property destruction uh, when it's somebody else's property is completely hypocritical. Obviously, if somebody were to come and, and destroy their Prius electrical vehicle or, or their lovely little Berkeley Hills bungalow, they would be the first to call the police. So I think Marxism is, is really not an essential element of this ideology. But there was a very weird alchemy that went on in the 
1980s and evolution of, of deconstruction into multiculturalism. Uh, the and and it's a it's a strange tale because the the primary thesis of deconstruction was that there was no such thing as the human self. This seems counterintuitive and it would be too complicated and, and unpersuasive to try and explain it because it really cannot be explained. But they argue that the self is a mere play of tropes. The 80s hit, multiculturalism hit, the jargon, the manner jargon, precious jargon of high theory continued and yet the self roared back with a vengeance. And so now the entire focus of, of academic theory is on this, the narcissistic study of self, which I view as such a betrayal of the humanist tradition. So it sounds like you're describing the worst of both worlds, which is the pretentious, jargony, intellectually nihilistic world of, of deconstructionism coupled with the narcissism of uh, identity politics. Uh, would you say that's a... The description of the current academic climate that pervades your book? Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate because the identity politics language is just as Baroque and arcane and impenetrable. People like to say that deconstruction is over. It's not. We've, we're recently going through this, another Me Too meltdown over a professor at New York University who was a, a Derrida acolyte. And if you read her writing, it's very clear that that whole precious mannered discourse is, is continuing a pace, which I have always believed it was. Uh, I never believed the line that deconstruction is over. So it continues to thrive in in the sense, but, but again, now it has been melded uh, with the navel-gazing of the self, all to the end that the great works of literature are either left aside entirely or read through a lens that I think is is not exactly allowing students to appreciate what is really great in these works. You have this great quote in your book, W.E.B. Dubois, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas. I mean, these are, these are re really beautiful words, but they also speak to uh, what I would call intellectual universalism, perhaps a spirit that, that we have no longer. But if I can move on, some would say that this is a rarefied argument we're having. We're having, uh, we're having a discussion about what's going on in the university. Your book is, uh, you make no bones about it, it's, it's higher education. What about those who, who would, they would read your book and say, like, this is beside the point. We're living in an age of Trump. We have this racist president who says horrible things about Muslims and about uh, Hispanics. That is, is the dominant intellectual problem of our time, not the indulgence and faddish theories that take place on, on university campuses. Have, have you thought about that critique, and have you had to defend yourself against that in the age of Trump? Well, first of all, let me put aside Trump briefly. What is happening on the universities is not staying put. It is spreading very quickly into society at large. There's not a single mainstream institution today that is not in the throes of a massive uh, push to hire and promote by gender and race. Meritocracy is really an afterthought. If you're a white male, you're going to have to jump through a lot of hoops and be enormously qualified to get ahead these days. And I'm most concerned about what's happening in the sciences. It was 
thought by some optimists that identity politics would would be repelled at the Maginot line that would protect the the hard sciences, the physics, math engineering, computer science, and that that would be allowed to proceed without concern about gender and race identity. That's not the case. There's not a single science department in the country that is not under enormous pressure to hire by race and gender. Our our premier funder of basic research on college campuses called the National Science Foundation is simply obsessed with diversity ideology. It is paying gender researchers to do studies on intersectionality in the STEM fields. Intersectionality is one of the recent coinages du jour to try and express the unbearable awfulness of being a member of a favored victim group. So what's happening on universities should be paid attention to because it is transforming society into a set of divided realms that are bearing the idea that, again, racism and sexism are the predominant traits. Now, as to Trump, I think he's an aberration. I think he came out of nowhere. He does not represent something long-term about American society. He was responding, I think, to a quite legitimate belief on the part of many Americans that immigration rule of law had broken down completely and that it is the right of a sovereign people to decide who comes into the country under what conditions. It is not the prerogative of people living outside the country to form our immigration policy. So Trump is an epiphenomenon of that to a a very large degree, but I don't think he's going to have a heck of a lot of an effect on the growing spread of identity politics. As, as somebody who has made a close study of criminological data and, and takes the data very seriously, does it not bother you especially when Donald Trump misrepresents the data on crime committed by, by undocumented immigrants and, and suggests that they are sort of this marauding army of, of thieves and rapists? Uh, it, it, it does seem to be a, a rather bald-faced perversion of the data that's available, no? Yeah, I think he's got that story quite wrong. Uh, the real problem comes in the second generation of, above all, Hispanic immigrants who are getting assimilated into the underclass at a very worrisome rate. With Mexican-Americans, for example, the incarceration rate goes up eightfold in California between first-generation Mexican immigrants and their progeny. So there is most definitely a immigrant crime problem, gang problem, but it, it occurs mostly in the second and third generations, which is not to say that that's not an immigration problem. But I think Trump is wrong to uh, suggest that compared to the national average, immigrants have a higher rate of crime. I would say that data depends on who you're comparing it to. For sure, first-generation immigrants looked at as a whole have a lower crime rate than blacks, but they have, in general, a higher crime rate than many white communities. What I'm also even more troubled by with Trump, though, is his 
extraordinarily corrosive attacks on the criminal justice system. He's delegitimating federal law enforcement agencies, accusing them of political bias that I think is just a, a extraordinarily dangerous position for a president to take and one without empirical grounding. This may sound like a, an overly broad question, but I, your, your last response made me want to ask it. Uh, when, I, when I read your writing in, again, Commentary Magazine, I guess maybe 10, 15 years ago, I always just assumed you were someone who called themselves a conservative. Do you, in the age of Trump, do you call yourself a conservative? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I'm certainly not a libertarian. I, well, some might say you're the opposite of a libertarian in the narrow sense that you very much defend the, the right of the, the state to police the citizenry and, and you recognize the need for law and order, which is sometimes seen as, as being at odds with a libertarian agenda. That's certainly true. I, I think there's a, it's a genetic instinctive thing. One either has an automatic rejection of authority as kind of a adolescent outgrowth, but I'm not going to, that sounds too condescending. Obviously, that's a, a long-standing instinct within the American history and, and culture, but I don't feel that immediate suspicion of authority or, and in particular, of legal law and order authority. But there's many ways I differ from my fellow conservatives, but in general, I, I certainly believe in the importance of tradition of the universities and other institutions, but the university in particular, uh, with its mission of passing on the inheritance of civilization. I think Michael Oakeshott wrote about education very profoundly in seeing it as a transaction between the adults and the children who are inducted into what it means to be a human in any particular culture. Your work, and, and to a certain extent, you personally, in a physical sense, have been attacked or besieged by the left. Uh, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that in a few minutes, your, your personal experience on campus. But have you also been attacked by name by, by think tank libertarians who, who resent your full-throated support of police? Oh, absolutely. There was uh, the, a libertarian economist reviewed the my previous book, The War on Cops, for the Wall Street Journal, and I subsequently debated him, and I'm putting scare quotes around that that only you can see, Jonathan, under the auspices of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. And I've, I've never met a more mean-spirited debater in my life. It was just juvenile in his attacks. And he, my book, The War on Cops, was about Black Lives Matter narrative. It was about the very dominant race rhetoric around policing. Libertarians are by and large blind to race issues. It's all about government power. Uh, they're, they're obsessed with the civil asset forfeiture issue. So his review didn't address the Black Lives Matter aspect of my book at all. And he had a, a radical position of he thinks we could do away with police forces entirely and have it all be just private forces as if that would if they would be any better in, in respecting if, if he believes that the police don't respect uh, civil rights, why thinks a private entity would be <laughs> it's a, sort of a mystery to me. But yes, I've, I've most definitely been attacked by libertarians. Well, now let's get into um, maybe a more, a less metaphorical form of attack. In, in your book, uh, The Diversity Delusion, um, 
you, you mentioned several episodes, fairly harrowing ones on campus, where there was one episode, I think it was, was a Middlebury College, where Charles Murray, people went nuts. And actually, I think somebody, not Charles Murray himself, but somebody got seriously hurt in, mm-hmm. in that encounter. And I did not know this before I read your book, that you yourself were speaking, was it Claremont University? Claremont McKenna College, yes. And that's in California? Southern California. It's east of L.A. And you weren't attacked physically, but it sounded like there were a few hundred people who wouldn't have minded if if you did take a few knocks. Can you tell that story a little bit? Because I I don't think people familiar with your writing uh, know just how weird that experience was. Well, I was invited by a political science institute on campus to speak about my book, The War on Cops, and they got word a day or two before the event was supposed to happen that a Facebook call had come out to shut down the fascist Heather McDonald, and they said they were initially thinking of moving it to a different venue. This is a, a lecture series that happens in a place that's called the Athenaeum. Uh, or the Ath, as, as it apparently is known. Apparently so, yeah, according yeah. to the college newspaper. And they were initially thinking, having come across this this Facebook uh, chain, that they thought they should move it to a venue with better means of egress and fewer plate glass windows. So this was not exactly reassuring. But when I arrived on campus, they said, well, they decided that they would hold it in the Ath after all. But I was immediately put into what was, in effect, a safe space with the blinds drawn, and I could hear around me uh, loud chanting and drumming. I felt both like sort of I was in the Emperor Jones by O'Neill and also as a member of the French Revolution might feel and hearing the crowds around the guillotine, and I couldn't see anybody. I didn't have the visual, but I could hear it. So I was then escorted through a secret passageway into the building. But at that point, about several hundred protesters had surrounded the building in order to prevent anybody from entering to hear me. This was supposed to be a campus-wide event. Students were invited to a dinner. The, the room was, it was like Lady Haversham, the room, they had all the food out, a big buffet, nobody there to eat it. And the students had this wonderfully uh, maudlin gesture where in the blockade around the building, the black students were on the inner ring of blockaders and the white students on the outer ring with this preposterous idea that the, the Claremont McKenna police would be would be bludgeoning the black students if their bodies were not protected wow, by the so white those, students. Those heroic white students avoided what almost certainly would have been a pogrom. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're the real heroes. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. And so you gave a speech to an empty room? Yes, uh-huh. That must have been weird. It was. It was very weird and uh, to try and maybe movie actors do this all the time, but uh, – you were kind of like a voice actor at your own speaking engagement. Exactly. And I did, they, I got two live stream questions because they had set up in advance a live streaming mechanism. But after the second question, the pounding on the plate glass windows outside and they had, they had put the blinds down and moved the podium so that I, the outline would not be visible from the outdoors as the night fell and the lights went up inside so, the auditorium. So just, <laughs> just so we're clear, the outline of you, you know, a fairly, I have to say, unimposing 
Uh, Those use petite, come a, a on. Petite, you, well, I, I, there I, I you go. Bite your head off. We live in the Me Too era. I have to be very careful <laughs> that the sight of you would not traumatize people and drive them into some kind of tribal rage. Right. Although it does seem tribal. Like the stories you tell here, especially the, what happened at Yale in 2015 with people, you know, getting in, in, in each other's faces and, and screaming and shrieks, uh, almost rending of garments. Have you ever had the opportunity to speak with any of these students? After the fact, and 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 just ask them like, what were you thinking when you were shrieking these things? Like, is that something you're still proud of having done? Is has that been part of your research to actually talk to some of these students and find out if they regret acting in such a, a melodramatic manner? I've not asked those questions of the participants directly. I would be very surprised if they regretted it because they have not ever. There was a, a few. It, my experience at Claremont McKenna. There were about six students that were given temporary suspensions from the school. Which you laud in your book. You say that that's, it's actually that's unusual unique. that there's any It's never happened yeah. before. Yeah. Every place else at Yale. They got awards at Yale, apparently. At Yale, they were awarded for racial justice. I mean, it was the most deplorable activity I've ever seen. It was just a sheer breakdown of the norms of civil behavior and the responsibility of adults to inculcate students into a code of of respect and politeness and how we treat each other in civil society. These were students who were cursing using the foulest language, the foulest language of opprobrium against a worldwide respected sociologist simply because his wife had sent an email meekly suggesting that students might be allowed to choose their own Halloween costumes without oversight from Yale's own massive diversity bureaucracy. But students are allowed to get away with it, and they are congratulated. These these feckless, cowardly college presidents inevitably kowtow to these ignoramuses and, and beg forgiveness and so you, promise to make amends. So you do sound angry, and I, I guess listening to you, I, I feel angry too. Like... Reading your book, actually, it gets you pissed off. And I guess what pisses me off is the cowardice, because a lot of these university officials you're describing, it's clear that, that they're interested in, in saving their own jobs, saving their own skins. Uh, is that a self-selecting thing? Like, are the people who become these diversity deans and provosts and, and whatnot, are those people who, who have drunk the Kool-Aid and they go into these jobs? Or is there something about these jobs that the risk-averse instincts take over and they become like that? What is the personality profile of, uh, I think, feckless cowards is, is, I forget, maybe, was that your term or my term? My term. Okay. Yeah. I, is, is, do, they, do they go into these jobs like that? I think so. Well, it's uh, self-selecting. Who knows what the cause and effect is? It's it's both. The the job molds the person. The person molds himself for the job. But there has never been a college president, very few, that have shown any courage in standing up to these yahoos. There was one, John Silber, in the in the uh, was it 1990s, I think, at Boston University, who was widely lauded for saying, "I'm not going to give in." to the ignorant trashing of, of the curriculum. Uh, and I'm not putting up with this, but very few otherwise. One final question for you. I think, I think it was maybe two years ago, there was, or maybe a year ago, there was a New Yorker article about campus culture, and the centerpiece of it was a group of students at Oberlin College, a uh, very high-end uh, liberal college. 
And it was actually sort of, I guess, from, from your perspective, it would be seen as a good news piece. It was about how some students at Oberlin had, had, had really social justice types had really overreached the year before and some, some stuff on Facebook had gotten completely out of control. And now the, the, the local, the, the big social justice club, which was, had been doing all sorts of demonstrations and walking to classrooms and screaming at people and that sort of thing, that they had, had been forced to retreat. That even students themselves, including a few students of color, had said, look, enough, this is getting ridiculous, we came here to get an education. Uh, and it was presented as sort of like, hey, maybe this social justice mania uh, has, has crested. In your own research, have you seen any, any evidence of that, that students themselves are, are getting tired of being told how to dress and what to say and what pronouns to use and that sort of thing? No, I hear that students are checking themselves even further. Anybody who does not agree with the social justice ideology just simply doesn't dare speak up. Now, there are I, – I really laud these like campus Republican groups. Not I was not political in college. I was a liberal by default, but – uh, it's it saddens me today that students actually almost have to take a position because things are so divided. If I could just clarify, I think in this article in the New Yorker about Oberlin College, it wasn't like the young republic. I doubt there are young Republicans at, at Oberlin, but maybe I'm wrong. In in one particularly memorable scene, it was actually a student of color, a young man. I think he might have even been a freshman. He was the one who got up in one class and said, "Look, enough! I came here to get an education." In the same way that when you go to communities in Bronx and Harlem, that sometimes it is people of color who, who themselves are, are the voice of conservatism. So have you met students of color, professors of color? I, I notice uh, you have, you know, Shelby Steele is one of the, the people who's blurbed your book. Of course, he's, he's an old culture warrior. Uh, I remember him from decades ago. Are there younger voices, people of color, who have particular moral authority to push back against some of this? Have you encountered people like that on campuses? Well, I mean, you guys have published the great Coleman Hughes, obviously. Uh, Who's here in New York. Right, at Columbia. And he's yes, not even a professor. He's, he's an undergraduate. He's an undergraduate, yeah. right, which I don't know which takes more courage. But um, he's, he's the Mozart of, of pushing back. He's, he's like a child prodigy. He's, uh, yeah, no, yeah. he's uh, one – wishes we could fast forward time to see where he ends up because it's going to be so painful to have to wait, you know. But high, it, high things, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there, there are dissenters from this in the favored victim groups, but there's just been time and time again in the last couple of years, the usual assaults on the canon, the usual claims. I mean, Yale has now destroyed its requirement that students in the English major take the course that I took, was privileged to take as a freshman called Major English Poets that canvassed the absolute essential landmarks of English literature, which was Chaucer, Edmund Spencer, Milton, and uh, Wordsworth. And the students there, the people of students of color at Yale, complained that reading this course put them at risk uh, exacerbated the culture of racism that they were forced to live with. Again, I cannot stress enough, this is complete delusion. Yale is not racist. Yale wants all of its students to succeed. So it's always nice to be able to end on an optimistic note, and that's what the public always wants. I wish I had one. I, I wish I could say that things are turning around. One can only beat back the lies and speak the truth and and. I guess have to have a provisional belief that truth will ultimately win out because 
again, what motivates me is I believe in the university. I believe in the extraordinarily privileged project of passing on these great works before which we should be down on our knees in gratitude. When we stop teaching them, they die, and that is on our shoulders. And children are being denied the opportunity of experiencing ideas works of language, works of music that will take them out of their narrow selves into a a realm of sublimity. Inspiring words, even though they're couched among pessimistic and troubling insights. I have been speaking with Heather MacDonald of the Manhattan Institute. Her book is called The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Quillette. It's an honor to be with Quillette. Thank you so much, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content. 